Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who covered the issues that matter most. And I was there the night when the tanks rolled in and I was on the streets for five and a half hours with my camera crew and we got the only Western footage of what happened that night. My guest today is Kate Aidy. Kate was the BBC's chief news correspondent for years. She's reported on some really historic stories from witnessing the massacre in Tiananmen Square. She reported on both Gulf Wars, the Rwandan genocide and the troubles in Northern Ireland. I probably don't need to tell you, but this woman is an icon in our industry. Kate, how are you? And thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Well, lovely to be uh, with you. I was in New York uh, a short time ago, and now I wonder, I wonder, gosh, when do I next get there? Hasn't life changed? Mm. I know. Where Where are you right now, Kate? I'm in Dorset in England, one of the lovely counties, and I've been as has most of the world, um, sort of stuck at home. But no great stress there in the sense that it's a lovely county. We've been able to go walking. We've got beautiful, beautiful countryside around us. And um, I have a lovely little puppy to keep me occupied as well at the moment. So, Kate, you have had the most wonderful career. Um, You're a real inspiration to female journalists, I would say. Um, You became a war reporter when not many women were around. How did it all start for you? Well, I never thought of a career at all. When I was sort of growing up and a teenager in the 60s, the idea of career for women was not a common one. If you were kind of brain box blue stocking, you you know, you might be a teacher. But on the whole, most girls were really being encouraged. And I was a sort of middle class girl, went to a private school. It would be terribly nice if you just learned a bit of shorthand and typing. And then you got married and that was it. And so I never really dreamed about a career. I didn't think about it, maybe a bit scatty, except that uh, my headmistress was determined to get at least one of us wayward young things off to university. And she landed on me, partly, I think, not because of brilliant exam results, certainly not, because my name began with A. So she, you know, she sort of started and tried to get us you know, in somewhere. And she finally managed to sort of persuade a professor uh, that she had a girl who would really do well. And I was sent off to university. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to study. I actually arrived on the first day. I knew it was languages. But I was, you know, somewhat surprised. Well, I don't know, uh, and rather cheered when this nice man stood in front of me in a three-minute interview and said, hello, Miss Haley, I'm the professor, blah, blah, you will be studying Swedish. And I said, oh, thank you very much. That was the next four years sorted for me. And after that, quite simply, I had to find some sort of a job. I had no idea what I was going to do. I graduated. And of all of the things that happened a good month or so after my final exams, I was mooching around at home in the northeast of England, 
and was wondering what to do. And would you believe there was an ad in my little local newspaper and it said, BBC is starting a new venture, local radio. And I thought, that sounds fun. So I applied. And as they say, the rest is history. So, okay, you got the job in local radio. And do you want to kind of fast forward to the kind of historic moment where you found yourself outside the Iranian embassy in London and how, I guess, your career catapulted from there? Well, I spent seven years in local radio and I learned the business. I I reckoned I could interview a mute stone and get something out of it. I ended up in the most weird circumstances, trying to um, interview people, trying to fend off randy gentlemen, etc. And (laughs) all the things that happens to a young... I was a producer. I was a technician first. I wasn't in the newsroom and I didn't really have a desire for it. And I ended up, after all of those years, years, I was very lucky. I'd have got a massive grounding in what makes broadcasting. What, what's important? What's, what's my job? It's to get the fascinating, the interesting, the important, the significant, all the things that other people have in them. That was the important thing. And to know how to get that story out to a wider world. And so For six days, the centre of London had almost ground to a halt. Extraordinary, the area near Hyde Park, Kensington, right in the centre of London, because six days previously, a group of men had burst into the Iranian embassy, big, tall, terraced house, at about late morning, shot somebody as they went in, and taken all the people inside hostage. They were demanding better treatment for people in a regional area of Iran, uh, a very, to us, obscure political demand. But they threatened that if they didn't get the Iranian government to give them concessions and the British government was to pressurize them, they would, well, possibly kill people. And we had been outside for six days. I tell you, not just uh, the BBC, the world's press were there, all sort of sat around on the main road near the Royal Albert Hall, right in the centre of London, grand buildings. A lot of people sprawled in Hyde Park next door, right across the road. Uh, Six days in the days when we didn't have instant live broadcasting, no mobile phones. And so... Life was quite leisurely. We all had about two deadlines at the most per day for the news people, early evening, mid-evening, bulletins. There was no 24-hour news. And there was a sense of, well, you just sat there. We did have one kind of live broadcast. We had the outside broadcast van, and so did ITN. Um, And so there was a way to go live. But in those days, with no 24-hour news, uh, you waited until the bulletin to put anything out. On the sixth day, I was put on shift in the late evening. I'd been down there pretty well every day doing a shift. As a junior, I got the late shift because nothing happened at night. Don't worry. I, I've done those shifts at the BBC UK <laughs> at midnight. Don't you worry. I understand. I was expected to turn up at eight o'clock in the evening to do eight until 8 a.m. 
It was a bank holiday. And therefore, uh, the bulletin, news bulletins were rather thin anyway, rather short. So I got called at about oh, maybe 5, 5.30 in the afternoon by someone from the newsroom who said, um, <clears throat> we, um, we might need you to come in a bit earlier. I was due to do the 8 o'clock at night till 8 the next morning shift because I was the junior. Nothing happened at night. So I got the late shift. And they said, a bit earlier, I got another call later, which said, could you actually, um, yes. I said, why? And they said, well, a correspondent says he has a dinner party to go to. So I thought, okay, wasn't doing anything. Drove down to central London and got there to find he'd already gone. And a short time later, there was this huge explosion, smoke billowing from the embassy, pandemonium, police running everywhere. And we got it all on camera. And as it happened, a few seconds into it, we went on air. And what happened was that we broke into the program that was on the main BBC One channel. Now, that's not unusual these days. That had almost never happened before. And certainly not on a live action story where no one knew what was going to happen. And I found myself commentating, lying on the ground with a microphone and with no information whatsoever anywhere. I'm talking about the men going in, the sound, we could distant shots, um, smoke, the building on fire. And that was it happening live in front of us. That really is extraordinary. And I, you know, so you were just telling your audience what exactly you were seeing there and then live in that moment. I knew a fair bit about it. I mean, we had all the background that was we were party to. I'd done one other thing. I'd been taken by a senior officer, the, the man in charge uh, there, a policeman, with whom I'd done a seminar, what we used to call a hypothetical, which is a whole group of people sitting around a table very calmly in a country house uh, discussing what you do in certain situations. And we gamed, each of us having to role play, going into a building held by armed terrorists and being asked, because they had demanded, a television interview. And I was taken day and a half before the end of the siege on the Saturday by that senior officer to the building next door to the embassy. And I saw all the listening devices on the wall. Wow. I saw the whole sort of way it was being done. And I was asked, was I prepared to go in? Because they demanded a TV crew. And I said, yes. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> it so happened that it never came to pass, partly because tensions rose uh, in the next 24 hours. And of course, it culminated in the SAS going in on the Monday, Monday evening. In what, uh, in front of what turned out to be one of the great record audiences of over 20 million viewers and me talking. It's such an amazing story, Kate. I want to ask you, is there a moment you're most proud of? Maybe it's a story that had serious impact. Oh, the only story I feel that still has impact and should, and I feel strongly about it, and I was talking about it again this year on several outlets, 
particularly those headed to Hong Kong and China. I was in Beijing towards the end of the student protests, which had been going on for three and a half months in 1989, with thousands and thousands of young people, not just students, gathered in Tiananmen Square in Beijing and asking for change, asking for reform, protesting against corruption. And they were very serious-minded students. They weren't rowdy or difficult. It wasn't like a student demo that I'd been in when I was a student. They were serious, academic. They were committed. They were thoughtful. They spent the days debating and talking, sitting on the ground, planning. They were no threat to anyone, except, of course, to the old beasts who ran the Communist Party who hated the idea of being challenged, of the Communist Party being challenged, of any talk of democracy. And I was there the night when the tanks rolled in, and I was on the streets for five and a half hours with my camera crew, and we got the only Western footage, TV footage, of what happened that night, of people being shot at random, of gunfire raking across crowds, of bullets thudding into little, the little traditional houses in the centre of Beijing, which have now been cleared away, the hutongs, and bullets going through the walls of houses and hitting people who were watching television, or people who came out into the street wondering what the noise was of all of these trucks soldiers and there were I mean people died in front of us and eventually they moved into the square one of three armies which were sent in and they were sent in and they had been told to quell a possible insurrection organized by foreigners the kind of lies that only a very powerful in control communist party can tell and it was dreadful we thought at the time about two and a half thousand people had been killed and many more injured Our people were dragged from the hospitals we saw secret police coming into the hospitals taking away the injured afterwards we were told they were thrown into crematoria the brutality the callousness its own people. And right at the end, when we were at quarter to five in the morning, I was standing and I did a piece to camera in the square with that army behind me. The students and young people were still standing there. And the reason was they could not conceive, having been told from the tiniest tot upwards, that the army loves the people. They could not conceive that their own army shooting at them. I mean, Kate, I don't think we can overstate the fact that you essentially prevented the Chinese government from rewriting a very, very dark and brutal spot in their history. Lots and lots of people have written books. Many more were there. Students survived. Eyewitnesses, people who were there in the square with the rest of the organisers and also who saw what happened afterwards. But at least we got the pictures and we got into a small hospital 
It's the only time in my life I've seen the war, the, the, the floor running in blood. I mean, we waded through blood. Every single person who came in had huge bullet marks made by high-velocity rifles and high-powered rifles. Um, the, it, was, it was proof. It is proof that they sent their army to kill their own people. And they have rewritten history, of course. They do talk about some troubles fomented by foreigners and a few people were injured. But what they have done very successfully is suppressed it within their own country. It didn't happen. Google Tiananmen on the internet. Not only will you find nothing. Google Student Uprising 1989. Nothing. Not only that. The people who supervise the internet in China will find you and there'll be trouble. It still matters. It still matters. Of course Because it does. you see the people in Hong Kong, they know what kind of regime it is. Democracy is worth fighting for. And, you know, what, what you saw in Beijing in 1989, does, did that ever have a, an effect on you personally? You know, did it ever take a mental toll? And I know... I know your answer nearly before I asked the question, you know, no journalist wants to become the story. It's not about us. It's about reporting what we see and, you know, getting other people's voices out there. But honestly now, Kate, did it ever take a toll? Uh, it didn't take a toll. It has hardened my resolve that you, um, as a journalist, should uh, show what you see, that when people try and prevent you, and people physically attacked us that evening, you know, the secret police, and we were defended by total strangers who allowed, got us to keep our camera and our footage and, and stopped them arresting us. Um, it, it, it really gave me the most enormous resolve that I, I never claim that, you know, a television news story can change history. I think that's grandiose. But you are a witness to history. The history's there. We got the pictures, we got the, we got the testimony. It's there, and a great number of people have seen it. And that has always given me the most tremendous sense that it's a worthwhile job. Yes, there's the gossip stuff, there's the light stuff, fine, right. But there's also the serious stuff. And we live in an age at the moment where people scorn the media. They do it down. They don't value it. And these are often powerful people. And they're in democratic countries. Shame on them. Shame on them. The press is one of the pillars of democracy. And it should, the phrase is, speak truth to power. And that's, you can hear, I am on my soapbox. I feel immensely strongly about it. And I think it matters. It matters for ordinary people, everybody, because otherwise they lose their voice and the media acts as a voice for them at times. Are you worried, Kate, then, about the current state of journalism? I worry about a lot of things in it. I worry about the people who would smear it and whose ignorance seems to encompass the fact that no idea about how real democracy works and what people's rights are. And I worry, though, in the sense that it takes money. Strangely, journalists have to eat. And therefore, you need to be paid. Uh, therefore, you need to have somebody who's got the money to pay you and the faith that you bring in something which other people will read about, see, or, or, or hear. 
And I worry that not much money comes into journalism these days. Newspapers everywhere are having a tough time, particularly in North America and in the UK. And, uh, and on top of that, there seems to be less appreciation that we need hard facts in a complex world. We need hard facts. And what I'm very optimistic about is there's vast numbers of young people who want to come into journalism. And so many young people, I meet them, want to make documentary films. They want to go and do report where there is trouble. They want to do something about the state of the world and people in poverty, all of these things. There are so many young people who want to do it. What we need is a concerted effort to find the economic base for it. And so, therefore, it's a matter of finding the right vehicles in a modern world, which maybe finds maybe newspapers, mm, not as trendy, they can bother to buy one while you look online. Well, you can't have it all for free. Exactly. It's decent stuff. You need to pay for it. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I think I'm hoping the world is realising that as well. I think things are shifting. Kate, this is going to be a hard question because as the old adage goes, if you see Kate getting on a plane, you should probably get off the plane because, you know, you're not going to be safe. So is, is there a moment in your career that you could pinpoint as being the most crazy, let's say? Oh, I've got so many. I can't actually, I can't actually list them. I once had a conversation of a most weird sort. Most of them were weird with Colonel Gaddafi. There were lots of other people around, but we seemed to be in a corner of the room at three in the morning, which is when he used to give press conferences. There was a lot of weird things about him and unpleasant as well. But um, I thought this is the point. You know, is this as every journalist thinks, where you sort of say, "I need to tell you," "I need to ask you." about the serious allegations about funding terrorism. I'm going to have, he said, said, do you think we should have beaches with little, little bikini, bikini? And what? It turned out that he was thinking of actually starting tourism. And I was having a conversation with whether bikinis should be allowed on beaches. We got on the subject of alcohol and I said, and he said, you think it's good to have the drink, the beer? I said, otherwise, I said, well, I think tourists are unlikely to come, a lot of them. Yeah, if there's no alcohol. Okay, I said, but will that be allowed? He said, for tourists yet, I must keep Libyans away from it. Otherwise, they will never do any bloody work. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm really glad, Kate, you brought up Libya and Colonel Gaddafi, because I believe uh, Colonel Gaddafi once nearly ran you down in his little Peugeot. I have to tell you that, that, that Libya was, was one of the most bizarre and dangerous places to work because nasty things happened. People disappeared and there was a brutal police and he himself was none too pleasant and his family, ugh, some of them. But I was standing outside the big hotel in which all the foreign journalists were corralled in, just wondering when we were getting anything, because everything was controlled and it was bizarre. Whenever they cancelled a press conference, we got taken on an enforced picnic. It was a very strange place. And I was just standing looking at these bedraggled plants in this sort of parched, I can still see it in front of um, a sort of non-garden in front of the hotel, when a car sort of came erratically, um, a, a dusty small Peugeot, sort of arrived and mounted the pavement somewhat, lumpity lump, you know, and then came to a sort of bonk, help, sort of stop. 
in front of her, and I thought, oh God, an incident, but you know, I sort of, and I sort of woke up a bit, and I walked out, and the door opened, and Colonel Gaddafi got out of the Persia car, you know, having sort of crash parked it. And he recognized, I mean, he knew I was one of the journalists from the from the hotel, you see. So I stood there, and his English was never good. But And I said, this is your car? Because normally there was a cavalcade, and there was huge outriders, and there were people behind him. And so, yeah, he said, yes. I said, it's a Peugeot. I think it was a 303, a tiny, tiny bent bent and distinctly rusty pressure. And I said, yes. He said, hmm, this is people's, people's Libya. This is people's car. I drive people's car. <laughs> That's hilarious. So he actually, he wasn't trying to intentionally run you over. It was, it is not a thing to ask. Sure. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Kate, this is a slightly self-indulgent question, I guess. Northern Ireland, you spent a lot of time reporting on the Troubles. And I wondered um, if you'd tell us about a particular story you covered. You, you basically came across a body by a Christmas tree. And I, I read about it years ago, actually, and it really, it stuck with me, if you if you wouldn't mind. It's, very, it's, it's, it's desperate. It was one of those killings which happened late at night in an area where there were burnt out buildings because people had been driven out of their houses and it turned out that it was a little family and we got a we got a tip off as you did um uh, and we shot off to this address in a rather deserted street some of the houses were not lived in and um the door was open and we got there just before the army and the police and I sort of paused, and the door to the house was open. It turned out that the wife was a nurse and doing a night shift. And I just turned left into the living room, and under the Christmas tree was a body. I shot. And there was a small boy standing there, and he said, Mada, Mada, he won't get up. I felt, you know, that's when you feel very inadequate as a journalist. You know, you're the wrong person to be there. And, and a few, absolutely just a few seconds afterwards, a soldier came in, a young soldier, British soldier. And I said, can you take him outside? And there were some neighbours had gathered. I could see them through the window. I said, take him outside, take him outside. And he did. And, you know, as a, as a journalist, you know, what can you do? What can you do? And you're on the scene. And it's that thing that quite a bit of journalism is intrusive. And there's nothing you can do. Um, you, you have to be a realist about being a journalist. Um, you have to know that you can't change the world entirely. All you can do is show a story, write it, record it. You can do what you can. But it doesn't, it doesn't really convey what goes on at times. There are huge limits to the job. So, so, so that boy's father had been shot by the IRA. He was a, a wee Protestant boy. I mean, Kate, it must have been, I would say, very difficult 
um, you know, working in Northern Ireland with a British accent, working for an institution that's kind of deemed by the Protestant side as being traitors to the unionist, unionist cause and, and the Catholic side, you were kind of seen as enemies of republicanism. I have to say that made it actually in a certain slightly easier because everybody <laughs> disliked you in one way. Well, not all the people, but the people absolutely involved in the violence, etc. Neither of them, neither end of it thought that you were any good, really. Um, what was very rare was to have violence shown to us. Very rare. Uh, I would say this. I mean, I used to love, except for the, you know, there were some terrible, terrible incidents. But I have to say, and I, I characterize, and I've said this time and again to people in Northern Ireland, I've said Northern Ireland is the only place in the world where in the middle of a major riot, somebody will tell you a joke. <laughs> I mean, I really find it the most extraordinary place. I love the place. I, I just, I go back to it time and again. I love it. I love it. I just used to find it wonderful in, in so many ways. Of course, the troubles were grim. But the spirit and people, I mean, are uh, fantastic. Well, it's such, it's such, I love Belfast. I lived uh, in Belfast, worked for BBC Northern Ireland for a while. It's, it's epic. Um, I did wonder what they referred to you as, Kate. Were you wee Kate or were you? Um, you me of my first week in Northern Ireland uh, where I turned up, and this is in the, in, in the mid 70s. And I remember and, uh, I was going to interview somebody on the political side and a voice said, a wee woman is here. A wee woman? I suddenly learned that women women's lib had not got to Northern Ireland in this. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a whole new vernacular up there. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, Kate, thank you so much. It's 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 a real pleasure to talk to you. You are iconic in our industry. You've paved the way for so many women. Um, so we're so grateful that, that you came on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.